You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Good morning, church. There we go. Good morning. I mean, there's rain outside, there's open Newberry, there's no stopping you. Come on. This is, these are the strong Bostonians that I know and love. It's you. Um, I am so happy to be here this morning with you all. Uh, beautiful, cozy morning. We are, we're here together. Um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is David. I'm the church planning resident here, and I have the honor to bring the message today uh, from the Word. And so if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I really look forward to doing that. We are continuing in our sermon series called the I Am series, or I Am. And this series is about the metaphorical statements that teach eternal truths. In the book of John, there are seven strong I Am statements from, uh, from Jesus that show eternal truths using metaphorical statements. For instance, last week, Brian taught about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. But before that, I had a chance to talk about how Jesus is the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. There are these metaphorical statements that show us God's eternal truths. Now today, we're going to be talking about I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is very similar in John 10. There is an I am statement we're combining with this one today, where Jesus says, I am the gates. And very quickly after that, he also says, I am the shepherd. And we know he's the good shepherd, right? So I am the gates. I am the way is what we will be talking about today. And this is the statement. I mean, this is a strong statement. It's right here. Jesus told him, that's Thomas. Jesus told Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this may be one of the most quoted verses from Jesus. And we talk about this pretty often. Uh, some preachers really, really love to, to stay on this verse and to live right here. Um, and sometimes never move away, but, but we, uh, we know that this is a powerhouse, a strong, strong verse. So you're probably familiar with it. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is probably something that you have heard time and time again, maybe to the point that has become numb to you. Maybe this is something that has become boring and we kind of breeze on by it. This has been true for me, where we have become so used to certain scriptures that we kind of breeze by it, we kind of forget to give it the depth that it really deserves, right? Let's, let's, let's dig in, let's go deep with this one today. And maybe you're here and you aren't following Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're seeking or you, or you have doubts within your faith. Yeah, just like the rest of us, welcome. If you are here, maybe you hear this and there's some defensiveness growing in you because you detect a little bit of exclusivism from Jesus. We're gonna talk about that and we will do it with grace and we will do it with truth and I am so excited to get into this with you today. There are three lessons that we will cover today. This is, this is the structure that we will follow today. There's three lessons. The exclusivity of Jesus and diesel engines. It's a little goofy. We'll get there. Come on. The exclusivity of Jesus and diesel engines. We'll talk about radical inclusivity and good art. I'm excited about that one. Abraham Kuyper and clocking in. These are our three lessons that we're going to get to today. I'm excited to share the word uh, this morning. Let's pray before we get into this, that this, is a, that this is a sermon, that all of this worship that we're doing, all of this that we have 
that we have set up, that this is something that is committed to God, that this is not for ourselves, this is not for our own pleasure, this is not for our own vanity or our own conceit, but that this is, that this is for God. So pray this with me, and then we will get into the sermon, okay? Here we go. Uh, King, we, we come before you, um, we praise you until you come again. Just like we sang, God, we just pray that, that you would strengthen your people, that you would teach us something in your word like you are good to do. So God, I just pray that this is committed to you. Our worship, um, the teams that are here to serve, God, all of us who have come on a, on a rainy day, we lay this down before the throne right now. So King, this is yours. I pray that you do with it what you will. God, anything that is of ourselves, that is of selfish ambition, of vain conceit, I pray that whatever is of us, that it just looks foolish, that it falls flat and it goes nowhere. But King, anything that is of you, like we always pray, God, I pray that it pierces our hearts, that it rattles around in our minds, that we would not help but to leave here forever changed by you. So King, we commit this to you. We're here because you've loved us first. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's get into this. The exclusivity of Jesus and diesel engines. Let's go back to the scripture because it is oh so important. And it's not that long. So let's reread this again. So John 14 verses 1 through 7 this time. Don't let your hearts be troubled, says Jesus. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you, that I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him, because they have seen Jesus. Now, let's talk about the context of this I am statement, because we, we quote this often. It's probably, it's probably taught more than it's taught in the context, but there is a lot going on around this verse. This is in the last week of Jesus' life. So, Jesus has already uh, walked into Jerusalem, and all of the, his followers and people who thought Jesus was really, really popular, they tried to make Jesus a political messiah. So there was this triumphal entry. Now Jesus, in the masterful way he does it, he rides in on a donkey. Why? Because it's a beast of burden, and he's, he's gentle and lowly. So he will not be the political messiah they want him to be. So this, is already, this has already happened. He's walked in, and this is now Jerusalem during Passover. So any any Jewish believer at the time, if they could travel, they would be at Jerusalem if they could help it. And so this city is packed with Jewish believers. There is teaching about the Passover, right? The exodus out of Egypt, when the Holy Spirit passed over the houses, saved, saved the Israelites from the, from the evil thumb of, the, of King Pharaoh. There's teaching going on for all of this. Um, Judas has already left Jesus and his friends so that he can round up soldiers and Pharisees to go arrest Jesus. Judas has already left to betray Jesus. And then Jesus says these words. In the midst of all of this commotion, this festival and also this betraying that's going on, Jesus has told his disciples, one of you will betray me. So all of you will deny me, but Peter, you will deny me very clearly. 
and then I will go away for three days, but fear not, I'll come back to you. They don't know what this means. They don't understand the crucifixion and resurrection yet. And so they're emotional, they're anxious, they're tense. They're probably very, very confused, and Jesus says this, I am the way. This This is the scripture one more time. Lord Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? You can hear the distress. Like, you can hear that distress in his voice. How can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here today, we will talk specifically about I am the way. And truth and life are in there as well. But we will talk about the way. Mostly because Jesus is answering Thomas' question, And so there is at least a little bit of emphasis on the way. Truth and life help describe Jesus simply because it describes why he is the way. Let me let somebody smarter than me explain this concept. Look at this. This is D.A. Carson, someone who is um, much, much wiser than I am. And he says this, explaining why the truth and life describe the way. He says this, Jesus is the truth because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. He himself narrates God, says and does exclusively what the Father gives him to say and do. Indeed, he is properly called God. He is God's gracious self-disclosure. That's good, isn't it? He is God's gracious self-disclosure. His word made flesh. Jesus is the life, the one who has life in himself, the resurrection and the life. We talked about that the true God and eternal life. Only because he is the truth, here it is, only because he is the truth and the life can Jesus be the way for others to come to God. The way for his disciples to attain the many dwelling places in the Father's house. And therefore the answer to Thomas's question, how can we know the way? And Jesus says, you already know the way. I am the way. Now, there is a pretty clear exclusivity that Jesus is claiming right here. Jesus is making a strong, exclusive, me alone claim. Now this is a difficult, this is a difficult place to start, but to be honest, if we had opened up this verse ourselves, and if we had read this just in this context, we would have probably felt that too. Believers, not believers, we would have felt that strong claim that Jesus is the only way. And that's a strong claim. It's a bold one. So what do we do with this? Our culture clearly teaches to embrace every faith as beautiful and to accept each faith or or any rejection of faith as living our own truth or finding our own path, finding our own happiness. Now, let me be very clear here. In this regard, beside other faiths and beside those who do not believe, we ought to be leaders of peace in this regard. Amen? We listening? We ought to be leaders of peace in this regard, beside other faiths, beside others who don't believe. But we ought to also be aware of the compromise to reason that might exist here, the compromise to logic that might exist here. If there is our faith and another faith that are mutually exclusive, or they are incompatible, one or the other may be true, but it cannot be both. In our day of pluralism, there's plenty of claims that any of those things could be true, 
we will live in peace with those people. We must be leaders of peace in that, in that example. But we have to admit, they can't both be true. There must be one or the other, but not both. Now, our exclusive claim is Jesus. He's the one who would be the one who is incompatible with other faiths. He would be the one who is unique and distinct to us. These are hard words, I know, but this is the truth of this, of this scripture. Our exclusive belief is Jesus. Our exclusive belief is salvation by grace, which means that we are saved not by our own doings. It means that we find freedom and satisfaction outside of our own means. We are not, this is the gospel. We are not able to find satisfaction, freedom, and heaven by ourselves. So there is no self-affirmation that we can give ourselves that would give us true freedom and significance and satisfaction. There is also no religious toil that we could do to accomplish that satisfaction and freedom. The only way is through Jesus. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. C.S. Lewis teaches this this way. He says the reason why it can never succeed, he's talking about self-affirmation, he's talking about finding our own happiness. He says the reason why it can never succeed is this, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits need, were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy on our own way without bothering about Jesus, without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Us, as engines designed by God, to be metaphorical, we were meant to, we were meant to run on God. So let's talk about diesel engines. You might see where this is going. You might see where this is going. Has anybody ever worked on engines before? Gasoline, diesel, anything, anything of the of the sorts? A lot of experts in here. Here we go. So, uh, so there's. I'm no mechanic myself, but I have a lot of I have a lot of family members who are, and I do my best. Uh, but there is a large difference between gasoline and diesel. What you need to know is that when you go to put gasoline in your car, don't put diesel in your car. That's the most of what you need to know. And if you drive an EV, I realize that this is starting to become an obsolete you know, illustration. So if you're driving an electric vehicle, just ignore all this. Um, so diesel and gasoline are very different. So if you, any of you are, are chemistry nerds, and I know there's some of you out there, then, then you'll know that the makeup is very different. A diesel fuel is combustible through pressure, not through flame, whereas gasoline is combustible through spark or by flame. So if you were to have a match lit and you would get gasoline anywhere close to it, even the fumes would, would ignite, right? With diesel, apparently, you guys go try this yourself, but if there's, a, if there's a match that is lit, you could put the match out with diesel fuel at room temperature. Like it, it would just put out fire because it needs compression. It does not need, it does not need fire. So if you put one into the other, it will either clog the engine or it will ignite early and cause engine damage, okay? So just put the right fuel in the engine because that's the way it was designed. Our souls, let's, be, let's stop being goofy for a moment. Our souls work the same way. Our souls 
need a specific fuel, need a specific food, and Jesus says, without mincing words, it is him. This is our claim. This is our exclusive claim to Christianity. So the lesson is this, is our cultural moment will present to us a plethora of ways to attempt to find meaning and satisfaction, but we believe eternal meaning and satisfaction can only come from Jesus. Now this is redundant because we've said this about 10 times now, but this is the lesson, that our souls can only find meaning, eternal significance through Jesus. This is a hard truth. Now, if we had opened up our Bibles, this may be the first one that's, that really hits us, is that when we open up our Bibles, we see John 14, we can see that there is a strong statement, an exclusive statement by Jesus. It is a historic belief in the Christian faith, and we still proclaim this today. True human flourishing can only come from one source, and it's Jesus. We believe that. We believe that it's by salvation, by grace, our exclusive claim that we flourish. So that is, that is Jesus' exclusivity and diesel engines. Let's talk about radical inclusivity and good art. So we've already concluded there is an exclusive claim in our faith. It is what? It's Jesus. It's salvation by grace. There is an exclusive claim to our faith. If we only had John 14, 6, if we only had this one verse, the way, this pro would probably sound cold, this would probably sound harsh, this may sound very, very closed off, but we don't have one verse. We have an entire ministry from Jesus, and he shows us that he ministered, especially in his time, like nobody else ever did. He ministered in an inclusive way like nobody else ever did. I'm going to read the scripture right here. This is the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and we'll start to see the context of why Jesus was not just exclusive, he was radically inclusive. Read this with me. It said, he had to travel through Samaria. Jesus had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. It was about midday. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. She responds, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living water. Now the quick context of this, because this is really, really important. I can't get to all of it, so this is your homework. Go read John 4. It is too good to miss it. This is your homework. The quick context is beautiful. Jesus is traveling through Samaria. It says he had to travel through Samaria. Now he did not have to. Most Jewish rabbis at this time would have gone all the way around Samaria rather than in a straight line through Samaria because they did not want to step into heathen lands. They, did, they wanted nothing to do with Samaria. So they would have traveled all of the way around. Jesus does differently. As he's sitting at the well in the middle of the day, a Samaritan woman comes to the well. Now some things are odd here. For one, 
women, when they drew water for the family, they came in the morning because it was cool. It was when it was the easiest to draw water, and there was also community there. Everybody would go to the well in the morning, they would, they would catch up with the whole town, and then they would go home with their water. This woman is not with the community. This woman is an outcast, and she's coming in the middle of the day. John 4, as we get into this, and it is your homework, that you would, you would see that she has had five husbands. And that means that she is either incredibly damaged, or she's really sinful, or somewhere in between, and so most Jewish rabbis would have had nothing to do with her. And Jesus, in the way that he does it, lovingly, graciously engages with her. And he offers her what? The exclusive way. Living water. He offers her the way. Now this is one example of many, many examples of Jesus being this kind of way. This inclusive inviting all people to himself kind of way. This is one example. There's very many others where Jesus is purposefully going out of his way to do things like this, like travel through Samaria. Have you guys heard of Matthew the disciple? There's a book in our Bible named after him. Matthew was a tax collector, but he was from the tribe of Levi, which means that he used to be, he would have grown up as an expert in the law about Yahweh. He would have been an expert in Torah or on the track to be an expert in Torah. So as a tax collector, he has chosen a life that has not only betrayed his family and his heritage, which would have been the Israelites, now he's using his abilities to steal money from people, as tax collectors did. Jesus sees Matthew and he says, follow me. He's sinful, he's a, he's a traitor, follow me. Simon the Zealots, this one's less known, He's one of the disciples as well. The Zealots were a political faction that were violent against the Roman government. They were an Israelite terrorist faction. So they would have either supported violence against Rome or they would have been the ones doing violence against Rome. That's why he's called the Zealots, this Zealot faction. This violent person, or at least a supporter of violence, Jesus looks at him and he says, follow me. And he's never the same. Peter, Andrew, James, John, four of the most well-known disciples, had no qualification to be students of a rabbi. They were fishermen, just like us, no qualification to follow Jesus. And he looks at them and he says, follow me. Mary, not the, not the mother of Jesus, but Mary, the follower of Jesus, not the mother of Jesus, but the follower of Jesus, was filled with many demons. Now, I don't know about spiritual uncle uncleanliness, but that seems like a pretty far place to be if, for spiritually unclean. Filled with many demons, she is freed of demons, and Jesus says, follow me. Again and again and again, we see Jesus as the exclusive way, being radically inclusive. People would not have touched these people. And Jesus says, I am the way. Follow me. Now let's talk about good art, because this is good. This is, I mean, this is maybe some of my area of study and expertise. Let's talk about good arts. There's this concept called consinity, and as for the life of me, there's, there's not many people who have heard about it. But is anybody a classically trained musician? Like, has anybody learned, like, piano with a teacher or anything about that? Anybody studied symphonies? Man, I'm over two. Okay, here we go. I'm over two today. Um, so if you're, if you're aware of really good art, there is this concept 
called constinity, and it means this. The purposeful reinforcements, do you see it there? The purposeful reinforcement of the various elements of a work of art. That might seem like jargon, but the point is, is that art is very intentional. It is not accidental. A Beethoven symphony did not fall out onto the page. He placed every note. The art was not, was not put onto the canvas accidentally. Every stroke of the brush was intentional, and there's a reason for this. Let me give you an example, because this can be vague. Paradise Lost. Is anybody aware of John Milton, the poet, who wrote a, an epic poem called Paradise Lost? And I want you to just read the first five, the first five lines with me. Pay attention to the meter, pay attention to the rhythm, right? We're in, we're in art class today, here we go. Pay attention to the, the meter, something's a little wrong with it. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit. Of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. With loss of Eden to one greater man, restore us and regain the blissful seat. Do you notice anything yet? One more time, because I don't, I don't have time to go like actually into a lecture, but here we go. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit. Of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. With loss of Eden to one greater man, restore us and regain the blissful seat. Did anybody notice it? Has anybody caught it? Takes a while. But the last four lines have 10 syllables. The first line has 11 syllables. The first line doesn't belong. The first line has broken the meter. John Milton did not do this on accident. He did this on purpose. What is the syllable that does not belong? Fruit. Of the man's first disobedience and the fruit. Why? When the poet would say this, fruit does not belong in his mouth. Just like in the Garden of Eden, that forbidden fruit did not belong in Adam and Eve's mouth. Isn't that brilliant? That is good art, isn't it? So he has done this on purpose. This is no accident. He is a brilliant poet. He does this. Let me give you another contemporary example. You will love this. Anybody listen to this new re-release of Taylor Swift's album? Yeah? Speak now? Yeah, I've listened to it so much, thanks to my wife. So I, we've listened to this so much. And there is a song on there called Last Kiss. And this is the song about Joe Jonas breaking up with her, allegedly, right? She hasn't confirmed these things, but, but this is the song about Joe Jonas breaking up with her. There are 27 seconds of an introduction before the words begin, before the lyrics begin. Why? Because it only took 27 seconds for Joe Jonas to break her heart. So when she, when he was called, when she was called by Joe Jonas on the phone, he broke up with her in 27 seconds. So the introduction is 27 seconds long allegedly, right? Consinity. It's good art. This is, this is artists making purposeful decisions to reinforce their choices. Who is the greatest artist that there ever was? Our Lord. Who was the greatest artist that there ever will be? It was God. I mean, look at you. Look at me. God has created a beautiful creation, every one of us in here. God has created a beautiful creation, and he very specifically, every step of his ministry, every Samaritan that he put into a parable, every woman that he loved at the well, he made a claim that God calls all people to himself. Amen? This is our God. This is good news. So this is the, this is the lesson today. The ministry of Jesus, without any limits, calls all people to himself. There is not a conceivable person who was able to stand outside the bound of God's grace. Now, it's always through Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through him. 
But he invites who? He invites everyone. Now, I don't know if you've been in a, like a ragtag journey to find the Lord like I have. Like I've worked in fast food and hotels. I worked at schools. I've been, I mean, I've been all over the place. And when church comes up, there are inevitably some people that say, oh, I don't belong there. Oh, if I walked into a church, I'd burst into flames. I've gotten that one before. I mean, straight from somebody's lips. Like if I walked into a church, I'd burst into flames. I disagree. Our king draws all people, all people to himself, and we leave forever changed, forever different. This is the goodness of our God. So radical inclusivity and good art. Our God is a good artist. Let's go to this last lesson. Abraham Kuyper and clocking in. Abraham Kuyper and clocking in. Let's go back to this. Let's go back to the scripture so we don't get off of base. It says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare, prepare, excuse me, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, Thomas was so much closer to the answer than he realized. Thomas gets a bad rap. If you know his reputation, some call him Doubting Thomas, and I abhor that. I mean, I push against that just really hard. But some call him Doubting Thomas. But he just wanted to be so, so close to the Lord all of the time. In the account when Jesus is going to, to raise Lazarus, we talked about this last week, Thomas says, let us go with Jesus so at least that we may die with him. Right? He's walking into enemy territory. Let's at least go with Jesus so that we might die with him. Thomas was saying, if we die and we're with Jesus, it's okay. Thomas was this close to his rabbi. Now, when Jewish students would be below their rabbi, they developed this kind of love, this adoration for their teacher. We must too. I mean, that is our, that is our whole spiritual maturity journey as learning the depths of God's love, the depths of Jesus' love for us. There was this Jewish blessing that was told from one Jewish student to the other. They would say, may you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. It's an odd blessing, isn't it? May you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. Now, what does that mean? Somebody who would follow a rabbi, they would follow them everywhere. Not just the temple, not just the Sunday morning or whatever it may be for the equivalent. They would follow them everywhere. So a rabbi would go to the market and they would follow them to the market. They would go to, they would go back to the temple and teach and they would follow them right into the temple. If they traveled, they would travel with them. So the blessing was, may you be so close to your teacher that the dust that they kick up May it land on you. May you be covered with the dust of, the f- of your rabbi, because they went everywhere together. This is us with our Lord, that we will follow him everywhere into every domain of our lives. So this is a, rec- this is a lesson that I learned recently, and so I'm working through it, still working through it, but we'll share it right here today. It's if Jesus is the center of our faith, then he ought to be the center of our methods too. 
or maybe this is a practical application for us all today, if Jesus is the center of your life, he ought to be the center of your methods as well. There is a quote from Abraham Kuyper. I've commandeered it recently. I've overused it recently. It says this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every domain of all of human existence is the Lord's. When we commit to follow the way, we commit to follow his methods as well. So let's get into this. Let's get practical. Let's think about clocking in. Now, I don't know what that looks for all of us. I don't know what job you're working. I don't know if you're here and you're studying and you're in a major right now. But let's think about what it means when we get to work. Let's, let's follow Jesus into work. Let's catch the dust off of Jesus into work. Now, I need you to critically think about your area of expertise, simply because I am no, I am no anesthesiologist. I mean, I am, I am no biochem, yeah, right? I, I'm not there. That's, that's you. So this, this is something that I need you to think critically about for your own major, your own area of expertise. This is now your critical thinking, your job to do. This is your second round of homework, okay? Our, how are we following Jesus' methods where we are? Now, the Bible is not specific for right, anesthesiology. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't give us specific words. So we must, with our Christian community, and we must, with our own critical thinking, understand what it means to be not just this job, but somebody who is following Jesus in this work. If you're in finance, there are, there are laws that are legal in the United States that would be illegal in the Bible, that would be unlawful to take from the poor, give to the rich, whatever it may be. Which ethic do we follow? If you are an artist, if you're a creative, then work excellently. I mean, work well. Reject the reputation that comes with artists and creatives about being lazy, about never being on time, right? All of these, all these reputations, reject these and work with excellence. Why? So that you can reflect the excellent art of the creator. How does your work reflect the methods of our Lord? This is your work to do. I, we can't do it for, I can't do it for you. This is your job. Now, as we are thinking through this, as we have to do this critical thinking, there's a hymn that comes to mind, and you can say this to yourself, or you can, you can memorize this, or whatever it might mean, but this is a hymn that is beautiful, and has guided me through a lot of my tough life decisions, and it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So how do we guide in our area of expertise? We turn our eyes upon Jesus, right? If our methods are damaging others for the sake of us, our company, are we following Jesus' methods? If our methods favor the strong over the weak, are we still following Jesus' methods? If we, ever, if we ever carry with us an entitlement about ourselves, have we forgotten lesson number one? 
that there is salvation by grace outside of ourselves that has brought us to where we are? How does Jesus guide us in our methods, no matter where that takes you? This is your work to do. Now I'd like to end, we're gonna end a little bit differently today. Because we're gonna end with some time of reflection. Do you notice these first two verses? Because they're good. We've swept by them too quickly. These first two verses say this. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. Jesus is in the last week of his life. He will be full of distress and anxiety as he looks at the cross, but more, more profoundly, he will be anxious that he will be separated from the Father so that we may be with the Father. Our God, Jesus, is a good leader. He does not call us to a place that he will not go first. He went first in pain, so he sympathizes with our pain. He has gone now to glory so that he can tell us that there is somehow a glory waiting for us. He does this because he is capable, he's the way. He does this because he loves us, he's radically inclusive. And we follow him. So the way is Jesus. It's redundant, we've said it a hundred times today. The way is Jesus. Look to him, behold him, fall in love with him. He has the truth, he has the life, and we know that we can trust him with our lives. I wanna take a moment of silence, of prayer, of reflection. I'm gonna give you a little over a minute. What needs to come out 